This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 18, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Trade policy remains a key instrument of American power and wealth, but it doesn't have to stay that way. In his new book, Trade and American Leadership, Craig Van Grastek discusses the declining share of global trade held by the U.S., while the U.S. simultaneously depends more on its global trading partners. We spoke in February. If you were to look at uh, the leadership of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, uh, do you see sort of a sign, cosign movement uh, with respect to feelings about trade? Because right now we're at a time where Democrats support uh, free trade in in very high numbers, and Republicans are just the opposite. And 10 years ago, people would have thought you were crazy for suggesting that uh, that would be true today. Well, we really have different groups, different sets. When you say leadership, uh, the leadership of the Republican Party is really divided at this point. You've got Mr. Trump and those who who have gotten wedded to him and others for whom this is one of the main issues that really divide them from the president. And the question being, you know, how much longer does Mr. Trump remain in office and how far does he manage to bring the rest of his party along with him? But my suspicion is that if he uh, is a one-term president, his impact on that party's position will be minimal. But if he is a two-term president, I think all bets are off. In the Democrats, it's a much more diverse issue. It's not just are you attached to one person or not attached to one person. You're absolutely right that in the base, if you look at what the positions are held by people who self-identify as Democrats in public opinion polling, there not only is a growing support for trade in that group, but it is well above levels that you find among the Republican base, although that also has been changing in the last few years. There's been more of an increase in support for trade among the Republican base. Among the Democratic leadership, of course, when the party is out of power, it's hard to say who the leader is. We don't have a Democratic president. We have Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate, but we have different factions. We've got a growing group that calls itself the New Democrat Coalition, and it's a very pro-market coalition relative to other members of the Democratic Party. They represented one-third of the party in the previous Congress, somewhat more than one-third of the party in the new Congress. And I think that if we're going to look for pro-trade leadership, it's going to come out of that group or possibly if we can have a Democratic presidential candidate who does a reverse Trump and in effect appeals to that portion of the party that goes along with his or her position on trade can possibly pull them in that direction. But unless and until that happens, we've got a conflict between the somewhat older, almost ossified leadership of the Democratic Party that I think is trade skeptical at best. We've got a vibrant emerging group of represented by people like Alejandro uh, Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez that takes a more redistributionist approach to trade and I think is, is going to be uh, very trade skeptical. But we do have this new Democrat coalition. We definitely have the potential for change in both parties, but we're in a, a period of uncertain transition. And although I can foresee the directions that we might take, I definitely can't see the directions that we will take because there's a lot of moving parts there. Historically, uh, what should provide us the most comfort with respect to uh, the situation we're in today with respect to trade? The most comfort, 
I think we could take from the fact that there are solid segments of the American public who either on the producer side or on the consumer side recognize the benefits of trade and are increasingly making their voices known. Uh, and, and part of that dynamism there gets back to uh, the point we were just discussing about the parties. Within the Republican Party, there's definitely an agricultural base that is made very nervous by the trade war made very nervous by the loss of markets and to the extent that the Republican Party is going to reaffirm or reestablish its position as the more pro-trade party, I think a lot of that is going to come from agricultural constituencies that are worried about the loss of markets and yet I'm, I'm made cautious about that conclusion by looking at the content of the 2018 election. We saw there an increasing number of Democrats running for the Senate, in most cases incumbents from rural constituencies that were expressing concerns over the trade war. We have at least three Democratic incumbents who were unseated by Republicans in the Senate in rural states, Republicans who sided with Mr. Trump on the trade war. So six of one, half a dozen of another, if I look at What's the encouraging signs from the pro-trade sides of, of, the, uh, of the American economy? At the same time, the fight is taking place within those sectors and we could see a transition within the parties. But overall, if you're looking for the light at the end of the tunnel, it's best to know how long that tunnel is. Uh, the issue of how long Mr. Trump remains in office is, is a part of it. But if we're looking for there to emerge again, uh, some pro-trade dynamism in this economy, it's going to come from those who count themselves among the winners in globalization. Mr. Trump managed to take office by appealing to those who count themselves among the losers of globalization. And the, the best sign is that in this country, the winners do outnumber the losers, but they were not well organized in the last presidential election. The U.S. share of the global economy has declined. Uh, and it seems now, if you're somebody who appreciates the value of global trade, uh, it seems now would be an inopportune time to retreat from the rest of the world uh, in, in, in some ways uh, that, uh, that we have been doing with trade. What do you see as, as the long-term effects here? Well, the long-term effects, this is a major issue that I, I deal with in my book, Trade and American Leadership, is, is this paradox by which, as you correctly point out, the U.S. share of the global economy has declined. Uh, the, the corresponding observation is the U.S. dependence on the global economy has increased. In addition to retreating from trade as we traditionally define it, which is a, essentially a, a commercial undertaking, we see an increasing interest on the part of policymakers in using trade as a tool of foreign policy. And you do that through either positive discrimination, extending preferential treatment to countries that you want to encourage in one direction or another, and negative discrimination in the form of sanctions on countries that you want to discourage from doing one thing or another, the U.S. capacity to use discrimination has actually been decreasing for precisely the reason that you suggest the U.S. share of global economy has decreased and because our increased dependence, we are, it is politically less sustainable for the United States to pursue a policy, a foreign policy in which trade levers are a major instrument and yet 
in this period of our economic development, in this period of, of our realignment with the world and uh, realignment with China as a challenger, policymakers, even before Mr. Trump, were increasingly turning towards those instruments at the very time when their utility has been declining. And I think that over time, we're going to find it more and more difficult to be able to uh, leverage our market as an instrument in a way that's that's going to achieve positive results. Why was uh, free trade a policy that was uh, so, so strongly supported for so long in the United States at a time when uh, U.S. involvement with the rest of the world was relatively low. Well, it depends on, on what you mean by U.S. involvement with the rest of the world. I, I, I would say- Well, I guess it, I, that's fair to say, yes. I mean, which involvement are we talking about? If you're talking about the role of- well, I guess we're talking in, in positive engagement, that is to say trade. Exactly, exactly. So so the, the share of the global economy that is reflected in our economy was relatively low precisely during the periods that the United States was at its, its peak of power. And yet- these are the periods that we were very engaged on a, in a political way, on, on the security front, in confronting totalitarianism, first with, uh, against Nazi Germany and, and then against the Soviet Union. It was relatively easy for American policymakers, especially presidents, to leverage that relationship at a time when the costs were perceived to be low and the benefits were in both directions, both achieving our political aims and achieving commercial aims because the United States was uh, for decades without question uh, the most competitive economy. Now, what's interesting to political scientists like myself is the U.S. commitment to free trade continued beyond the point where American competitiveness had reached its peak and began to decline. I come from an intellectual tradition that from the 1970s forwards was looking for the possibility of a U.S. retreat from economic leadership precisely because uh, many more American industries were beginning to be challenged. Uh, we are facing an economic transition in which our ability to, uh, to win in market competition in well-established industries, iron, steel, uh, other metals, automobiles, uh, electrical appliances, and so forth, we were losing market share to Japan. And when there was an increasing challenge there, starting in the 70s, there were many people who thought, well, this is where the United States is going to begin to retreat. In fact, uh, for decades, there was as much support for trade liberalization as there had been in the past. There were two adjustments that were made from the 1980s forward. One is the instruments that we were negotiating were decreasingly multilateral liberalization in first the GATT the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and then starting in 1995, GATT is replaced by the WTO, the World Trade Organization. We were multilateral, but more and more of our emphasis was on bilateral and regional negotiations. U.S.-Canada FTA, and then the North American FTA, uh, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was negotiated under Presidents Bush and Obama, but then withdrawn from uh, by, by President Trump. We moved more towards discrimination and also began to redefine uh, the issues we were negotiating on. Uh, and so trade was no longer just about tariffs and anti-dumping measures and other border measures affecting trade in goods, but we were dealing with trade in services, 
dealing with intellectual property rights, dealing with investment measures. And in my book, I argue how this is a natural consequence of the changes in our economy, that this is a, an adaptation of our objectives to meet the changes brought about by the creative destruction process in which the US economy was, was involved, including also the complementary international process of the law of uneven growth in which our competitors are, are growing at a, at a more rapid rate in the United States. But despite the fact that there were a great many scholars who in the 70s and 80s thought that on a commercial basis alone, uh, there was an expectation that we were going to be retreating. The continued perception of political benefits, the transition from multilateralism to a more discriminatory approach, the inclusion of new issues, all of these things serve to perpetuate for a much longer period than we would have anticipated uh, US leadership in these fields. But something eventually had to give and it gave as a consequence of the 2016 election and suddenly uh, the types of changes that many of us had been anticipating for decades came very rapidly. Does the stock market play any role here? Because I can imagine that if uh, Donald Trump sees a lot of red on Wall Street, that he would could easily become a born again free trader. Now, I, I realize that that his uh, skepticism toward trade and foreign direct investment and that sort of thing has been is is somewhat deeply held. But with respect to policy, uh, does the stock market play a role as a check with respect to trade? There are some specific episodes where you can you can point to in the past and say there is a relationship between what's happened on Wall Street and what policymakers do. But more often, I think it is the cause and effect is not from Wall Street to policymakers, but from policymakers to Wall Street, which is to say that if they do something that is perceived in a very negative way by the market, the market will react uh, and sometimes that, that leads to second thoughts. Uh, in Mr. Trump's case, I wouldn't expect so much, let us suppose there were a, a sudden correction suppose the market dropped by 10 or 20%. And we, we actually saw that happening and then it reversed itself a bit over this past year. I don't anticipate that the impact that it would have is causing him to reassess what he's doing, but to the extent that it causes a further rift between him and the Republicans on Capitol Hill, that may force some sort of reconsideration of the issues. You know, you have to remember that trade policy constitutionally is a responsibility of the Congress. Mr. Trump was able to do quite a number of things on trade policy in his first two years in office because the things that he chose to do were things that were within his constitutional authority either to not pursue uh, approval and implementation of the, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership for one or using in a very aggressive fashion uh, some of the legal instruments that, that Congress has delegated authority to the president. But there's a limit to how far he can go on that. There are things that he wants to do now that require congressional approval. So one would be Congress in effect ratifying his change in the approach we're taking to trade negotiations by approving the revised NAFTA, which is now uh, the US-Canada-Mexico agreement, USMCA. And he wants to negotiate free trade agreements with the United Kingdom post-Brexit, with the European Union, and with Japan. And for all of these things, he needs affirmative congressional approval. Thus far, he's been able to get by first by dealing with a Republican-controlled Congress. We don't have that anymore. He now is going to have to bargain more with Congress at a time when he needs Congress more to support him. 
And to the extent that he loses support from Republicans, perhaps as a consequence of a market crash, yes, that would definitely have an impact. But as I say, not so much causing him to reflect upon the uh, the error of his ways, but rather realizing that as political scientists have always said, presidential power is the power to persuade. His power to persuade even within his own party will be diminished to the extent that he is perceived as having uh, presided over an economic downturn if we have either a recession or a crash. We haven't had either yet, although we we had kind of a uh, a slow motion crash last year. Because I, I've, I've reminded of a counterpoint to what I just suggested, and that is uh, I cannot tell you how many stories I read of sort of man-on-the-street interviews of people who supported this president in 2016 who uh, have looked at his trade practices and have said, despite them, yes, I understand that trade is good. Yes, uh, our uh, local economy depends critically on trade, especially in the agricultural sector. Uh, and uh, they're still saying, hey, I'm I'm just hopeful that this is going to turn out well, that I'm willing to continue supporting this uh, president because uh, what he's advocating, it might go well. He might know something I don't. Well, definitely the the cliche that we often hear people repeating his his words from very early in the campaign that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still support him. Uh, th- that has yet to be tested in a serious way. Uh, Certainly, we have seen that uh, our politics have become increasingly tribal. Our support has been increasingly for personalities rather than than for parties or for policies. And uh, he definitely has managed to retain his core supporters. Whether he could do so in a recession, and I, I I understand your question about about the market and a possible crash. I tend to be more interested in the in the issue of an actual recession because uh, what the what the stock market does and what the actual economy do can can be dissociated in in some surprising ways. We're going to pass a milestone later this year. If we get to June without a recession, we will now have the longest expansion in American history, ever since we've been keeping records on on expansions and contractions going back to the 1850s. There's two ways to read that. One is you can say, well, Mr. Trump is is, is presiding over an economy that, that has done better than any in the past. The other is to say that, that the time is coming up soon. And if you look at the history of presidential runs for re-election, uh, in the post-war era, in the in the years since the Second World War, there are two key indicators of whether someone gets a second term. One is whether a president is credibly challenged for the renomination within his own party. Every president who has run for re-election and has not been credibly challenged has been re-elected. Everyone who has been credibly challenged has either withdrawn from the race for re-election or has run for re-election, gotten the nomination and lost in the general election. So that's one issue that's closely related to how close has been the conclusion of the most recent recession. We've never had a president run for re-election during a recession. The closest we came to that is the recession of 1948 began a few weeks after Harry Truman was re-elected. So he was, he was quite lucky. Every other president has been running for re-election during a period when, um, 
the the contraction had ended. But those who were closest to whether their re-election date was closest to the end of that contraction, those are the ones who lost re-election. They are also the ones who got challenged for renomination by their party. We've past the point of no return now. We are now at the point where if we have a recession anytime between now and election day in 2020, uh, the amount of time that would be left uh, assuming a, a recession of an average period of six to nine months, the memory of that would be so fresh that Mr. Trump, if, if we were obeying the historical laws, if, if, if we can put it that way, of past recessions, uh, that would doom him for a second term. The only two ways that he would escape that, if we assume that these are historical laws, are one, if we not only beat the historical record and we have a, a, the expansion go beyond 10 years, beyond June um, of this year, or if the declaration of the existence of that recession uh, it takes so far after the start of the recession. Because the funny thing about recessions is we sometimes don't know that we've had them until after we've had them. So it's the National Bureau of Economic Research that declares whether or not we are in a recession. And sometimes it takes them up to a year to declare that a recession has taken place. But a, a, the two most critical components of how long this president will remain in office are these related factors of a challenge and a recession. And right now we're already defying the laws of economic gravity by remaining outside of a recession. Craig Van Grastek is author of Trade and American Leadership, The Paradoxes of Power and Wealth from Alexander Hamilton to Donald Trump. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>